The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Hymn me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Beautiful psalm, the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. O great God, as we come before you this morning, we come... Not as those who come before a stranger who's distant and unacquainted with them. But we come before you as coming before one who has searched us and who has known us. One who knows everything there is to know about us. One who knows the words that we'll speak before we even say them. The one who has formed us intricately before we were ever born. The one in whose book all the days of our lives have been written before any one of them has ever been lived out. It's before you that we come. And on the surface, as we think about that, Lord, it's a frightening encounter to come before one who knows us so well. Frightening because we know ourselves quite well. Lord, we know that there's much in us that is unclean and unholy. Much that we would just assume hide from those who see us, but we can't hide from you because you know us. And what's more remarkable than that and what blows away our fears this morning is that not only do you know us, but you love us. You love us intimately and you love us deeply and we are in a very real sense your treasure. In spite of our weakness, in spite of our frailty, in spite of our of our unholiness, you Love us, and you are gracious toward us, and you are merciful and kind to us. And you pour out upon us grace upon grace upon grace. And we 
As we think of that, Lord, this morning, we, we, we have to say with David, such thoughts are too marvelous for us. It's impossible to grasp and comprehend how the holiest of holies, the God of this universe, perfect in every way, could be gracious and merciful and kind and love, deeply love, people such as us. We don't understand it, but we are immensely grateful for it this morning. And we come before you this morning, not with fear, but with hearts filled with gratitude because of it. And we are grateful that by your Holy Spirit, you are with us everywhere we go. Every moment of every day, and there is nowhere we can go to escape from your presence. We're never completely and utterly alone because you've granted us your spirit who dwells within us. And Holy Spirit, we are grateful for your indwelling presence in our lives for your work in our lives each and every day, for the way you particularly empower the worship of your people when they gather like we have this morning. And we understand that you have a unique work to do in us today as we open up the word of the Lord. We understand that you are the one who illuminates it before us. You are the one who teaches us from it. You are the one who convicts us in parts of our lives where we need conviction. You are the one who from the inside encourages us. So, Spirit, we pray that you would do your work personally, individually and corporately among us today as we study the word of the Lord. We pray for these things this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you, if you would, to turn with me to John chapter 14. It's pretty likely that your Bible already opens up somewhere in John by now. This morning we're going to look at John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. In verse 26, so if you have your Bible, turn, turn with me and I'll read aloud and you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, most of the uh, scripture passages will appear on the screen for you, including the main text this morning. So John 14, 16 and 17 and then verse 26. Jesus speaking says, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. If you've been tracking along with us through the Gospel of John, you know we find ourselves in chapter 14 really, uh, really very, very near to the end of the, of the ministry of Jesus. Really very near to the point where he's going to be arrested, placed on trial, ultimately condemned to death and crucified, buried and then resurrected. In fact, this conversation that Jesus is having with his apostles in chapter 14 um, is really kind of in their final gathering together before all of these events begin to unfold very, very rapidly. And this is Thursday night of the Passover week that Jesus is meeting with his disciples and he's speaking to them, sharing with them really this extended discourse that John includes for us here throughout this chapter and part of the previous chapter in which Jesus is telling them things that they really desperately need to know. They desperately need to know these things before he goes away, before all these events begin to unfold, before the arrest, before the crucifixion, before all of these things start to unwind and unwind rapidly and violently, and they are thrust into all sorts of confusion and fears. Jesus wants to impress upon them some truths that they desperately need to know. And we know, because we've been watching this all along, that 
as Jesus tells them these things, they don't grasp them fully as he lays them out. They don't understand him. They don't understand him at the point in which he tells them. But they will come to understand them later. And they will come to treasure these words later. They'll make a whole lot of sense a few days down the road. After the crucifixion, after the burial, after the resurrection of Jesus, after the Holy Spirit comes in all of his fullness at Pentecost, these words that, that Jesus said in these days leading up to his, his uh, crucifixion will be precious to these disciples. And you know, because he's already been telling them, I'm going away, I'm going away. He's been telling them from the time they, they turned their attention from the ministry in Galilee towards Jerusalem and started heading back to the city. Jesus has been telling them systematically what? He's been telling them, we're going there, and it's the last time we're going. When we get there, some bad things, at least in your perspective, are going to unfold. There's going to be an arrest. I'm going to be falsely accused. I'm going to be killed. My life is going to be taken, and I'm going away. He's told them that multiple times. And, and early on, as he was telling them that, they just blew past it as though they, they were more concerned with other things or they didn't want to believe what was about to happen. But now the time is getting really close, and Jesus is impressing this upon them. And, and the more the more he impresses it, the more the reality begins to set in. And the more the reality begins, begins to set in, the more fear begins to well up in their hearts and in their lives, no doubt. Because Jesus has been everything to them for these days, for these years. He's been everything to them. They had left everything of their lives to follow him. And, and no doubt, as soon as the crucifixion takes place, these men are thrown into to fear. They're, they're thrown into confusion. Uh, Jesus has been taken away. The one that they've left everything to follow is now gone. What are we going to do? How are we going to survive? How is the ministry going to continue? Is it going to continue? What, what, where does that leave us with him gone? And Jesus knew that was going to be a dilemma they were going to have to face. And so in these moments leading up to that, Jesus gives them some truths that are, they desperately need in those moments of confusion that they desperately are going to need to anchor them after all the events take place. And this truth that he lays out in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, verse 26, is perhaps the most golden of all. Because in it, Jesus explains to them, I'm going away, but I'm not really going away. Uh, There's a sense in which I'm going away, but he's going to tell them in the next chapter, I'm going away, but it's actually going to be better for you when I'm gone. Because what's going to happen when I'm going to be gone is, is there's another who's coming. And he can't come until I go away. I'm not going to leave you alone. Or as he says in the verse right after chapter, uh, uh, verse 17, verse 18, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. John brought that to our attention last week. I'm leaving and I'm going away, but you're not going to be left alone. That's something they're desperately going to need to know. And something they're desperately going to need to hang on to. And frankly, it's something that you and I need to know and something that you and I desperately need to hang on to. Because just like they're not alone, he hasn't left us alone either. In these verses, he tells us that there's another who's coming. The Holy Spirit. Identified here as a helper. He lays out the, uh, the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the Holy Spirit, the, the, the third person of Trinity. He, he begins to unfold this to the, to the disciples. I'm going away in a sense, but I'm also not really going away. Another is coming who's like me, and he's going to be with you. And so you're going to, in a sense, lose something, but you're going to gain something. And the net result is you've not lost anything. That's what he's trying to explain to them here. And in doing so, he explains to them something that is unfathomable to them at the moment, but will become incredibly personal later on. The person of the Holy Spirit. 
And so our task this morning is to look into this promise and to look into the, to the, to exactly who is the Holy Spirit. Specifically, who is he? What does he do? What's his identity? What is his activity? And, and John, or Jesus here, through John's pen, is going to tell us something about his locality. So his identity, his activity, and his locality. Who he is, what he does, and where he resides, if you want to look at it that way. And I'll just say right at the outset here, that if there's any, any doctrine that's, that people are confused about in our day, it's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you just read stuff, if you go to your Christian bookstore, your local Christian bookstore, and you begin to peruse books on the Holy Spirit, you will get anything and everything, uh, from one end of the spectrum to the other of things that are mad and confusing and bizarre uh, to things that are purely academic and have no practical value whatsoever. And, 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 it, and it kind of reveals to us or unveils to us two common errors that, that kind of persist in the Christian community when it comes to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. On the one hand, there's the problem of or the error of neglecting the Holy Spirit. This is something that probably um, is more of a temptation, more of a danger of folks um, like us. Uh, this idea that we just uh, we just don't give much attention to the Holy Spirit. We just don't think too much of the Holy Spirit. All of our attention is on the Lord Jesus, and He deserves our attention, or God the Father. But we just neglect the Holy Spirit as though the Holy Spirit is some mystery that we can't understand, that we can't uh, really make any sense of, some sort of a mystery that doesn't have any real practical value. So we just don't talk about Him. We just don't think about Him. We just don't uh, engage Him whatsoever. Occasionally, excuse me, other than occasionally throwing his name into a song that we sing. And this has been a a problem historically through various periods of the history of the church. Um, And I think it's a problem in certain sections of Christianity today. So on the one hand, you've got the problem of neglect, or if you could say it another way, cold indifference to the Holy Spirit. A cold indifference that says, you know, whatever the Holy Spirit is, whoever the Holy Spirit is, I don't care. I'm just not going to give any attention to that. I'm just indifferent to the work of the Spirit. The other end of the spectrum is an equally opposite problem, and that's what we could just call an overemphasis on the Holy Spirit. Or you could say it as this, wild excess in the Holy Spirit. All you have to do is turn on Christian television, Christian television, on your cable channels, if you have that, or your satellite channels, and you'll see lots of great examples of that end of the spectrum. Um, the Holy Spirit is given credit for all sorts of bizarre and wild and confusing things that actually have absolutely nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, but are just the bizarre actions of bizarre people. You have words being put in the mouth of the Holy Spirit, words that are not reflective of the words that are found in Scripture. New words, new revelations, and people all over the place saying, hey, I'm an apostle, I'm, a, uh, I'm a, a new apostle, and the Holy Spirit speaks to me, and when the Holy Spirit speaks to me, he gives me divine revelation that's unique, that hasn't been given before, and I then speak to you and tell you what the Holy Spirit has told me to tell you. And there's all sorts of people running around doing that kind of nonsense these days, saying all sorts of things the Holy Spirit has told them that he has not told them. And so on the one hand, you've got uh, cold indifference. On the other end, you've got wild ex- a wild sort of excess. And, and neither one of those is the appropriate place to be. Uh, we need to be where the Bible lays us out. We need to understand who the Holy Spirit is. We need to understand what it is that the Holy Spirit does. What is his identity? Who is he? What exactly is it that he's about? And then we need to trust in him, lean on him, 
look to him every day of our lives. So I hope this morning to be able to kind of lay this out in a way that doesn't come off as cold indifference, that um, I, I'm pretty sure it's not going to show up as wild excess. Um, I think you're pretty sure of that too. Um, but I want us to lay it out in such a way that we're drawn to the Spirit of God, that we're drawn to Him this morning, that we understand who He is and what He's about and the relevance of His work in our lives. That's, that's the goal this morning. And I think that was Jesus' goal in, in bringing this up to the, to the disciples just before his crucifixion. He, they needed to know who the Holy Spirit was. They needed to know what he had been doing and what he was about to be doing and the role he was going to play in their lives and in the establishment of the church that God was going to establish through them after the resurrection. So that's what we'll look at this morning. We'll start by looking at the identity of the helper just the identity of the helper, because that's how the ESV translates it in verse 16. Now, I'll just say this. Um, the, the, the Holy Spirit is called many different names in the New Testament, or in the Bible in general. The Holy Spirit is given many new names. I'll just give you a quick, a quick glance at a list of some of the names that the Holy Spirit uh, is given in the, in the text of the Bible. And that's a pretty good list, right? He's called the Spirit of Glory, the Lord, God. He's called the Spirit of Revelation, the Spirit of Wisdom, the Spirit of the Father, Spirit of Truth, Comforter, Spirit of Grace, Holy Spirit, Good Spirit, the Spirit, Spirit of Prophecy, Spirit of the Father, so on and so on and so on. Lots of names, lots of descriptive sorts of names that are given to describe the same person, the Holy Spirit. He's described, or, or analogies are, are made of him and his work. Analogies like fire, wind, a pledge, a dove, water. All of those things are used to try and describe the Holy Spirit, who he is and what he does. But here in John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus says this, I will ask the Father and he will give you, what? Another helper, another helper, that he may be with you forever. And that is the spirit of truth. And then in verse 26, once again, the helper, the Holy Spirit. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you have, this, this word that the ESV translates helper here um, may be translated a different way. Does anybody have a different version other than the ESV with you that translates that word differently other than helper? Comforter. Somebody has comforter. Um, you'll see it variously translated helper, comforter, uh, strengthener, counselor, advocate, lots of different words, lots of different words used to describe him. It's variously translated that way. And it's an incredibly hard word to translate. That's why you see it show up in lots of different English words. There isn't a good English word that captures the full, the full breadth of the the word that Jesus speaks here that's translated for us helper. We use the word paraclete sometimes. Maybe you've seen that somewhere in reading about the Holy Spirit. And that's really not an actual word. It's just a transliteration of the Greek word. Um, the Greek word that, that here in this verse shows up uh, as parakletos. But it comes from the Greek verb parakaleo, which simply means to call alongside. And so in, the, in the, the form that it shows up in this verse, it's not in the pure verb, it's in the, um, a, a verbal adjective, it, it, it identifies one who is called alongside. That's what the paraclete is, one who is called alongside. Well, how do you translate that into English, right? What word do you use to translate one who is called alongside? And then when you look at how the word is used um, in, in 
Greek of the day, um, it starts giving you a little more color uh, to what it what, what what's really being described here. In secular Greek, uh, apart from biblical Greek, this this word uh, primarily has a legal sort of a connotation. It describes something like a legal assistant, a court advocate. It has kind of a courtroom flavor sort of thing going on. It's the idea of one who pleads another case, another person's case, one who one who is is at work on behalf of another one. Does that make sense? It's the, the person who stands, uh, if you just imagine a courtroom and someone's uh, a defendant, it's the one who advocates on his behalf, who stands in his, in his stead, the one who intercedes on his behalf in the courtroom. That's how it's used kind of in the secular term. It doesn't necessarily have that legal sense exclusively when we get to biblical Greek, but it does help us a little bit. Um, but this word paraclete is very difficult to translate. It's, it's one who comes alongside. It might have this legal sort of a thing to it, but it's much more than that. And so you understand why, why translators have a hard time. And so you see this word show up as things like counselor, comforter, helper. And counselor is a good, probably a good, um, a good way to describe it. D.A. Carson talks about this a good bit. And he, one of the things he says, he says, counselor is a good, good way to describe it as long as we understand it to mean a, a, a courtroom counselor or a legal counselor, not like a marriage counselor or a camp counselor. You understand why that's confusing? Because that word can mean a lot of different things in our culture. So it's not necessarily the best word. If we use it, we just need to think legal counsel, not camp counselor. The word comforter is not really a good word. What do you think of when you hear the word comforter? Other than a quilt. The thing you pull up on your bed that keeps you warm at night. In English, that's primarily how I use the word comforter, if I use it. Um, Carson says this, it sounds like either a quilt or a do-gooder at a wake. <laughs> Neither of which is a good description of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, so that's not the best word, probably. Uh, helper is, is the ESV translators use helper, and it's probably uh, the best we can do with that, I think. But even that word is inferior because it, it kind of has a, an undertone, um, an overtone, if you will, of being subordinate or being inferior. And the Holy Spirit is certainly not in, inferior or subordinate to anyone. Uh, but he is a helper, and so maybe that's the, the best way we can understand it. But Jesus helps us here when he, when he uses this term. It helps us to understand a little more about the identity of the Holy Spirit, more than just the word helper or paraclete. Jesus says in verse, uh, verse 16 here, I am going to send you, excuse me, I will ask the Father and he will give you what kind of helper? Another helper. Now that's helpful, right? That's helpful. When he says another helper, because that tells us something in Greek, there's two words for another. One is the word that translates another of a different sort. That's not the word here. The word here is a Greek word that means another of like kind, another just like the one that you've seen. Two different words in English. Another can mean either one. But in Greek, this is very specific. So when Jesus says, I will ask of the Father, and he will send you another helper, he will send you another paraclete, then that the indication is that they already have one. They already have one. You've already got a paraclete, and I'm going to ask of the Father, and he's going to send you another one, another one just like the one you have. Well, that's helpful, right? Because who is the only paraclete that they have at the moment? Who is the helper that they've had for three years? It's been the Lord Jesus. 
He's been with them in person, God in person. He's been their helper. He has, he has been everything to them in person. He has been their, their teacher. He's been their encourager. He's been their comforter. He's been their counselor. He's been their strengthener. All of those things are things that Jesus did in the lives of the apostles. The difference is he did them as a, in bodily form external to them. He had been all of those things to them. He was their helper. And Jesus is trying to say to them, I'm going to go away, but you don't have to be afraid when I go away because, because the Father is going to send you what? Another helper, just like the one you have. You're going to have another helper just like me. All the things that I've been doing in your life, he's going to do in your life. He's going to do the same thing. Now that tells us something, right? So we don't have to struggle with Greek and English words to try and figure out what the Holy Spirit does or what kind of a helper he is. If he's another helper who's just like the helper that they've had, just like Jesus, then we want to find out the work that he's doing. We only need to look where? To what kind of work was Jesus doing in their lives? That helps. That helps. There are a couple of distinctions that we'll look that are going to be different about how the Holy Spirit is going to, is going to minister in their lives that he couldn't or didn't. We'll look at those in a bit. But at this point, we just want to get the idea, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, he's a helper. He's a paraclete. He's a helper just like Jesus was a helper. He's, in essence, just like Christ. And he's going to work in their lives in the same way. And, you know, that's going to be incredibly helpful. When this is all said and done, and Jesus is dead, and Jesus is buried, and they're afraid, when all of a sudden the light bulb comes on, right? The light bulb comes on. At Pentecost, right? When the Holy Spirit comes and they get personally acquainted in a very real and personal way, in a new and different way with the Holy Spirit of God, they will fully understand, yes, Jesus is gone, but he hasn't left us as orphans. And it changes everything for these men, changes everything. And it will change everything about your life when you understand it as well. So here, who's the identity? Well, he's a paraclete, he's a helper. He also is described here as the spirit of truth. Everything about the Holy Spirit is linked to and characterized by truth. The spirit of truth, that's why he's called that here. He's linked to truth, he's the spirit of truth. And that doesn't surprise us because God is is called God the Father, and God the Father is the God of all truth. Jesus said, I am the way, what? The truth and the life... So it's no surprise to us, God the Father is defined by truth. Jesus is defined by truth. He is truth. And the Holy Spirit is identified as the spirit of truth. And as we look at the activity, what he's going to actually do, we're going to find that he glorifies and he points men to Jesus, who is what? The truth. We're going to find that he does things like remind the disciples of the teachings of Jesus. And the teachings of Jesus are what? The truth. We're going to find that he doesn't bring unique teaching. He's going to say, I don't come up with things on my own. The Holy Spirit just brings to us what he hears from the Father, who also defines what? Truth. I'm not making the questions hard this morning. Really, I'm not. It's the same answer all the way through. Okay, it's not even multiple choice. Work with me here, people. Okay. The Spirit of Truth. So he's a helper. He's the Spirit of Truth. And he's given the title Holy Spirit here. So what do we need to know about him? We need to know, first of all, he's a person. We need to know he's a person. Many people wrongly view the Holy Spirit as though he's some mystical force to be tapped into. There's a new Star Wars movie coming out sometime this year. Are a few of you excited about that? Any Star Wars buffs? Yeah, yeah, you, it's okay. You can identify yourselves. You're not going to think badly of you. I like the Star Wars films, yeah. 
But we mistakenly often will think of the Holy Spirit like we think of the Force in Star Wars, right? As though there's some mystical force out there in the universe that has to be tapped into in some sort of a mystical sort of a way. As though he's some sort of an emanation from God. That he's not a person. But the Bible declares that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not some impersonal, mystical force. Spurgeon talks about this. He says, when I come to deal with the Holy Spirit, his actions are so mysterious. His activities are so secret. His works are so removed from everything that's familiar to our mind and body that I cannot easily grasp the idea of him being a person. But he is a person. God, the Holy Spirit, is not an influence. He's not an emanation. He's not a stream of something flowing from the Father. But he is as much an actual person as either God the Son or God the Father. And there's a danger in us not understanding this. James Boyce explains that. He says if we think of the Holy Spirit as a mysterious power or some impersonal emanation, our thought will continually be, how can I get more of the Holy Spirit? But if we think of the Holy Spirit as a person, our thought will be, how can the Holy Spirit have more of me? Very practical reason why we need to understand that the Holy Spirit is not some mystical force. He is a person. Now, when we think of personhood, this requires a little bit of thought. So you got your thinking caps on this morning? Yeah? All you ladies who were at the tea yesterday left your tea caps, your tea hats at home this morning. Most of you, right? <laughs> Except for Ashley. I like that hat. But we need to think about this. When we describe or define personhood, we need to think of personhood not being defined by a human body. A human body is not what makes you a person. Do you understand that? Think with me. You all have human bodies. True. True. You're all human bodies. There's no zombies in here. Right? You have a human body. Um, but the body that you have does not define you as a person. Right? There's much more to you than a body. And some of us say, thank the Lord there is. Right? There's much more. I'm not, you know, the body doesn't always work right. I'm glad there's more to me than just this. And those of us who are, you know, aging a bit understand that the, the body changes and we're thankful that there's more to us than, you know, the body. Can't run as fast as we used to and so forth. A body is a part of who we are, but our body doesn't define us as people. There's much more to us than just a body. There's much more to you than just a body. You, you have an intellect. You have emotions. You have a will. There's a non-physical part of you that defines you as a person, that makes you you, Right? Because there's a sense in which these bodies are only temporary. These bodies are only temporary vehicles that the Lord has put us in that we live in for 50, 60, 70, 80, some 90 or 100 years until what ultimately happens to these bodies. Yeah, they poop out. I mean, they just, that's it. They're done. You know, they, they're done. They stop working. They don't, they don't operate anymore. And we die is what we call it. But when your body dies, do you no longer, do you cease to exist at that moment? You do not. Because your body doesn't define you as a person. There's a person in that body that goes to be with the Lord, absent from the body, immediately what? Present with the Lord. You, you, the you, the real you, the person, you, is present with the Lord. And ultimately, a new and eternal body is given. 
So when we think of the Holy Spirit, I think one of our challenges in our thinking is because we don't see a body, we don't think of him as a person. But the Holy Spirit is a person in every sense that you're a person. He has an intellect, he has emotions, he has a will, he is not impersonal. He is very much a person. And we see all of this in the text of Scripture. We see throughout the the Word of God that the Holy Spirit has an intelligence. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. There's intelligence involved in the Holy Spirit, right? This is not some impersonal, unthinking force. It's a person who thinks, who has an intelligence, who has knowledge, who has counsel, who has understanding. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, speaks of, uh, tells us that the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give you a spirit of what? A spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. He's a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge and understanding. He has intelligence. That's a, that's a mark of personhood. Tells us he has a will. Impersonal forces and emanations don't possess a will. They don't have desires. But the Holy Spirit does. Acts chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. Speaking of Paul and his companions, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But what happened? The Spirit of Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit, did not allow them the holy spirit clearly has a will he has desires right i mean and i love this passage because i sometimes feel like paul and his companions there you know don't know where the lord wants you to go so you just take off in some direction and you pray and you hope that he you know that if it's the wrong one that he does this that he stops you somehow right can you think of those times in your life when you were headed off in a direction and looking back you can see how the spirit of god stopped you and turned you in a different direction That's what happened to Paul. How? He has a will. He has a desire. He had a place. The Holy Spirit had a place. He had a desire and a will for Paul and his companions that they needed to go a certain direction. And when they went the wrong way, apart from his will, he shuts it down. Now, I want to know from Paul how that exactly played out. How did the Holy Spirit stop you and turn you? I know how he's done that in my life sometimes. Just a little aside from that. You ever wonder... You know, I don't know what God's will is for my life. You know, a lot of people sit around spinning their wheels for a really long time trying to sort that out. I think we can learn from Paul that you better just take off in a direction if you don't know. You know, think of a good direction. Use the brain God gave you. Use the word of God and take off in a direction. And uh, trust in the work of the Holy Spirit that if you're moving outside of his will, that he'll let you know and shut you down. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11 Speaking of spiritual gifts, all of these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually. How? As he wills. As he wills. The Holy Spirit has intelligence. The Holy Spirit has a will. These are marks of personhood, of being a person and not an impersonal force. He he can be grieved. He can be grieved. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Impersonal forces do not have emotions. They, do, they cannot be grieved, right? People are grieved. People get grieved. But not impersonal forces. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. He can be lied to. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? 
Who was it that, that Ananias and Sapphira had lied to? You lied to the Holy Spirit. You don't lie to impersonal forces. You lie to the people. You lie to people. The, 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 the folks who possess personhood. The Holy Spirit can be lied to. The use of a masculine pronoun is always used in describing the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, there's three genders. There's masculine, feminine, and neuter. Not to people, but to words. Let me make that clear. In our day, you have to make that clear. Um, to words. They can carry masculine, feminine, or neuter sort of an idea. So he, she, and it, if you will, in English. Um, the, the, the Holy Spirit is always referred to as he, the masculine personal pronoun. Another Another sort of indication that, that there's personhood here. The Holy Spirit is a person. Are you with me? He thinks. He has a will. He can be grieved. He can be lied to. He is a person, not an, an emanation or a force. R.A. Torrey says it this way, and this is great. The conception of the Holy Spirit as a divine influence or power that we are somehow to get hold of and use leads to self-exaltation and self-sufficiency. One who so thinks of the Holy Spirit and who at the same time imagine that he has received the Holy Spirit will almost inevitably be full of spiritual pride and strut about as if he belonged to some superior order of Christians. One frequently hears such persons say, I'm a Holy Ghost man or I'm a Holy Ghost woman. In our day, I'm filled with the Spirit. I've been baptized in the Spirit. But if we once grasp the thought that the Holy Spirit is a divine person, of infinite majesty, glory, and holiness, and power, who in marvelous condescension has come into our hearts to make his abode there and take possession of our lives and make use of them, it will put us in the dust and keep us in the dust. I can think of no more thought, no thought more humbling or more overwhelming than the thought that a person of divine majesty and glory dwells in my heart and is ready to use even me. That's remarkable, isn't it, when you think of it in those terms? A beautiful application of this idea that he is a person and not a force. But he's more than a person. He's not like any other person that you know. He's not like any of you as persons. He's not like me as a person because he's a person who's also God. He's a person who is also God. Now, we don't have time this morning to go into depth with the doctrine of Trinity, uh, but you understand, I think, at least casually, that the idea that the doctrine of Trinity tells us that God is one God who exists in three persons. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is what? Fully God, and there is one God. Now, we could spin our wheels on that for a very long time, and there's nothing I can say that can make that make perfect logical sense to you. A picture helps me sometimes. But it may not help you. But I will tell you this, you can think about it for your whole life and you'll never fully grasp and understand the doctrine of Trinity. How can God be three persons and yet be one God? Because it's, as, as David wrote in the psalm, it's too marvelous for us. It's beyond our human comprehension. But that is the way that the Bible lays out God to us. One God who exists in three persons each person being equally God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. The Son is God. But they are unique from one another in some ways. It is an unexplainable mystery. And yet we see it all throughout the text of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we have the baptism of Jesus. 
And we see all three persons of the Trinity present, right? And when Jesus was baptized, immediately what happened? He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw whom? The Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest, and and behold what? A voice from heaven. Who's the voice from heaven? It's the Father saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we have in one picture Trinity all present. Father speaking, Son baptized, the Spirit present. All three there. And yet all three are God. We have no problem thinking in general of the Father being God. In general, we don't have much of a problem understanding Jesus Christ, the Son, to be God. But it seems a little harder for us to understand and grasp that the Holy Spirit is equally God. And we tend to relegate him to some sort of a lesser status, but Scripture does not do that. Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them what? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's an equivalence. Not the Father, the Son, and kind of the Holy Spirit. In the name, singular, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's an equivalence. They're all God, equally God. In that passage in Acts chapter 5, Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? A verse later, he says, You've not lied to men, but you've lied to whom? You've lied to God. When you lie to the Holy Spirit, you're lying to whom? It's God, because He is God in His fullness. All of the main attributes of God that have been given to the Father that we see in the text of Scripture and to the Son are also attributed to the Holy Spirit. In Psalm 139 that we just read a few moments ago, we see that He has omnipresence. What does it mean to be omnipresent? Walk with me here. It means everywhere at once, right? You can't be everywhere at once. I can't be everywhere at once. But God is everywhere at once. And here in Psalm 39, where can I go to escape from your spirit? What's the answer to the question that David asks over and over? You can't go anywhere and escape from it. The depths of the sea, you can go to Sheol, you can cover yourself with darkness, but even darkness is bright because he's everywhere. He's omnipresent, just like the Father, just like Jesus pre-incarnate and Jesus. Uh, Omnipotent as well, he's all-powerful. He can regenerate spiritually dead people. John chapter 3, we saw this a while back, verses 5 through 7. Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless one is born of the water, and of whom? The Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's to be regenerated. That's to be taken from a dead person spiritually and made alive. It's the Holy Spirit who does that, who has the power to make the dead come to life. Who can make the dead come to life apart from God? Who has that power? No one. The Holy Spirit has attributed that power. He's omnipotent. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except whom? The spirit of God. He's also omniscient. He knows everything. Who can know the thoughts of God? Who can know that? God. That's it, right? There is no one else. So the Holy Spirit is at one and the same time, he's a person in the real sense that Jesus was a person, and he's also God in the same sense that Jesus is God, and we need to understand that's his identity. So when Jesus says to his disciples, I'm leaving, and I'm, the Father is going to send another helper, they're going to need to understand that this is not an inferior helper, that it's a helper that's equivalent to him, that's like him in every sense. 
you know, sometimes I can think of points in my life where I, where I, where I would read the text of Scripture and I would think, you know, it would have been really cool to be around in those years when Jesus was walking around and just see him. So I could actually know what he looks like rather than all the pictures of a smiling, white, long-haired guy that you see, you know, in our day that people draw of Jesus. He probably didn't look like that. I'd like to see him. What would it be like to hear him teach? And what would it be like to watch his miracles? As though, I would think that, as though somehow being there and seeing that would be experiencing something other than what I'm able to experience by the Holy Spirit now. He is no less a helper than Jesus. And the disciples are going to need to know that. But what, how does this helper help? What kind of activity is he about? What kinds of things does he do? Well, we, we see that in verse 26 a little bit, but it's, it's much more than that. And we'll try and kind of breeze through this quickly. What kind of help does he do? What kind of activity does the Holy Spirit do? In verse 26, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things, and he'll bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, I don't want to go into, um, uh, spend a whole lot of time on, on this particular part. Trust me when I tell you this. Primarily, what Jesus is talking about here is aimed at the disciples. When he says these words, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The way I understand this, I think best that Jesus is explaining to them the process by which the Holy Spirit is going to work in their lives so that they might be able to record Scripture. They might be able to write and record Scripture, the New Testament, something very unique to them. Jesus was saying he's going to do something very unique in your life. He's going to teach you all things and he's going to bring you to your remembrance everything that I've said for the purpose of you being able to write down inspired text of Scripture and it be able to be preserved for the generations to come. There is a secondary application of that to us in the sense that the Holy Spirit is a helper to us in the sense that he is a teacher for us. That is, he takes the text that they wrote and he illuminates it and makes it make sense to us. Are you with me on that? But both are encapsulated here in verse 26. But simply put, the work of the Holy Spirit is this, to complete and sustain what God the Father has planned and what God the Son has begun. The Holy Spirit's job is to complete and sustain that work. But how does he do that? How does he help? What kind of help does he provide? In looking at this, we need to see kind of two pictures. We need to see how did the Holy Spirit help What kind of a helper was he before Pentecost? That is the whole entire season of the Old Testament, all of history, up until Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost. What kind of a helper? What was he doing during that time? And then we need to ask the question, what has he been doing since? Because a unique change takes place, and that change is indicated in our text. But I'll point that out to you. What kind of stuff did the Holy Spirit do in the Old Testament and prior to Pentecost? Well, he was involved with creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And who was there? The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He was active. He was a part of creation. Job chapter 33, verse 4. Job writes, the Spirit of God has what? Has made me. The breath of Almighty gives me life. So, Holy Spirit has, has, a, has had a role in creation of the world. He has a, crea- a role in the creation of men. 
He was also involved in empowering people to do things. We see that all throughout the Old Testament, particularly. It's the action by which he, he, he helps people or enables them or equips them to accomplish very specific divinely desired, designed tasks. And we see that come out in the text by being described, so-and-so did something by the Spirit. Or so-and-so was filled with the Spirit, and he did X, Y, Z. National leaders were filled with the Spirit or empowered by the Holy Spirit. And judges, we see several examples of this. In chapter 3, verse 30, you can just put all those up there, David. And in chapter 3, verse 30, we see Othniel, the Spirit of the Lord was what? Are you asleep on me already? You can read. Oh, upon him, and he judged Israel. He was a leader, and he needed to judge. And how was he equipped and able to judge? Because the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, was upon him. Gideon, but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. The, the Spirit of the Lord specifically, uniquely empowered Gideon to do the task that he was called to do. Jephthah, then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. He empowered them to do what they were called to do as national leaders. And David, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, it tells us, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And what happened? The Spirit of the Lord, I love the way that's described, rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up. He was anointed as king. And the Holy Spirit uniquely empowered David. To accomplish that. So national leaders all throughout with the work of the Holy Spirit, he empowered them. He worked in their lives. The prophets, we see it all throughout the prophets in the Old Testament as well. Ezekiel chapter 11. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and he said to me, say thus, or thus says the Lord. How did the prophets speak for the Lord? The Holy Spirit enabled them. The Holy Spirit empowered them to be able to speak God's words. That's how the prophets spoke. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 30, in prayer, he's speaking to God. Many years you bore with them, and he warned and warned them. How? how? By your spirit, through your prophets. The prophets spoke by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Exodus chapter 3, we even see that, that craftsmen were empowered by the Holy Spirit, that that was part of his work. The Lord said to Moses, see, I've called by the name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I filled him with the Spirit of God, with what? Ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, all sorts of things for the temple. So he was empowering craftsmen. And, of course, he was responsible for the revelation of Scripture. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, knowing this, first of all, that no, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. How? As they were carried along by the Spirit. How did John write the Gospel of John? He was carried along by the Holy Spirit. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He was moved by, this, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave him the words to write. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Breathed out is the word theonoustos. It's, it, it's related to the word for the Holy Spirit. It strongly suggests that he's responsible. 
So that's the kind of stuff he was doing before. But what about in the New Testament era? What happens after Pentecost? What kind of activity is the Holy Spirit doing? How is he helping people since then? Well, prior to being saved, he convicts us of sin. Have you ever been convicted of sin before? Have you ever sinned against the Lord and instantly you knew on the inside what I just did was evil and wrong? Have you done that? Have you felt that? Have you known that? Have you ever spoken words that were sinful to someone and instantly the moments those words came out of your mouth and the back of your mind, you knew, you knew I shouldn't have said that. That was wrong. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to our conscience. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That's how they're able to live in sin and not feel bad about it. Prior to our conversion, he convicts us of sin. It's part of how he brings us to the Lord. In John chapter 16, a couple chapters over, verses 7 and 8, he talks about Jesus speaking about when the Holy Spirit comes. When he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, if you're a Christian today, you're a Christian because at some point in your life you were convicted of your sin. At some point in your life, your eyes were open to the reality that you're a sinner who's in rebellion against Almighty God, right? At some point you came to know that and to understand that and to realize that. And, and something inside of you understood this is evil and this is wrong and this is who I am and, it's, and I desperately need to be changed from this. The only way you could ever feel that or know that is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. That's part of his helping in your life. He opened your eyes to your sin and he brought conviction on your heart and he moved you with a desire to run to Christ to deal with that sin. It's part of what the Holy Spirit does. He does that prior to our conversion. He continues to do it after. But as we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, as he he opens our eyes to the glory of Christ and and makes him attractive to us, and we run to Jesus to be saved, it's the Holy Spirit, as we saw in John chapter 3, who regenerates us, who takes spiritually dead people and makes them come alive. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it tells us that the Holy Spirit seals us in Christ. In him, that is the Lord Jesus, You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and you were saved, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's work, the way he helped you, was he seals you in Christ. What does it mean to seal someone into something? He keeps them. He guarantees that you'll stay there. He he seals the escape hatch, if you will, and locks you into Christ so that nobody can remove you from the Lord Jesus Christ and so that you can't jump out. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he gives spiritual gifts to the church. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he sanctifies, that is, he cleanses us, he purifies us, he makes us holy. He teaches us. He illuminates the scripture to us. He, he makes it come alive in our very midst. Have you ever, have you ever uh, read a scripture either in your own private time or when you're in corporate worship or you're in a Bible study and all of a sudden a scripture that you had read that you've read before, before, before that never really clicked, all of a sudden it's like the light bulb comes on and that text makes sense now and you're like, well, how did I never see that before? Right? Have you ever had that experience? I have it all the time when I read the text. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's helping you 
That's what the helper does. He helps you. He'll, it's called illuminating. It's like shining a light on something that was previously dark. He, he makes it come alive so that it makes sense and so that it connects and so that you understand it and so that you can apply it. It points to Christ. John chapter 15, verse 26. He's a spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, and he will bear witness about me. It's the primary work of the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. You know how you can tell when you're observing something in our modern culture that is an excess of the Holy Spirit, that's out of bounds, that's unscriptural and being ascribed to the Holy Spirit? You can tell when it's not pointing people to Jesus. When it's pointing people to the Holy Spirit or pointing people to the person who's doing whatever or saying whatever, it's not the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's job is not to magnify himself. His job is to point people to Jesus. And so if somebody's doing something, acting out in a certain way, or saying something, and it's glorifying themselves or putting overemphasis on the Holy Spirit, then you can say in your mind, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's a different spirit because it was the Holy Spirit to be pointing me to Jesus. That's what he does. That's what Jesus means when he says, when, I, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll bear witness of me. He doesn't bear witness to himself. He bears witness to me. The Holy Spirit comforts, Acts chapter 9. He assures us that we belong to the Lord. He leads us into God's will. We saw that in Paul's life. He calls people to special service for the Lord. He does all of those things. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He does all of those things in your life and mine. He seals you in Christ. He sanctifies you. He, he illuminates scripture. He comforts you. He assures you that you belong to the Lord. He leads you into God's will. All of those things are the work of the Spirit in your life. If any of that has ever happened in your life, it's happened because the Holy Spirit has done it. You see that? And if it's ever to happen again in the future, it's going to happen because He does it. It's His work. That's His activity. Let me give you this last thing. The locality of the Holy Spirit. Identity, activity, locality. This is probably the most phenomenal part. Verse 17, the Holy Spirit, the helper, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you. Walk closely here. He abides with you and he will be what? In you. He will be in you. There's a very big difference between the way the Holy Spirit worked or helped prior to Pentecost and the way he's helped after. Prior to that, he has been with men. He worked from the outside in. You saw that with the national leaders and you saw that with the prophets. It was time for somebody to do something important for God. So the Holy Spirit is described as what? Coming upon them, for the, empowering them to do the task, and then withdrawing. He comes upon them and fills them, empowers them for the task at hand, and then withdraws. It's a, it's a, it's a coming from the outside to help with something. And for the apostles, at the moment Jesus says this, that's the same way that they've been acquainted with the Spirit. He's been with them all along. But Jesus says, something is about to happen when I go away that's unique. No longer will the Holy Spirit be with you. He will be what? He will be in you. He will indwell you. He will indwell you. He, he will not be someone from the outside who's working temporarily in on the inside. He will be someone who comes to make residence inside of you. Ezekiel prophesied this in Ezekiel chapter 36. He said, and there's a day coming when God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put where? Within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. 
and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit happened at Pentecost. And from that point on, every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the moment you believe on the Lord, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This person who is God takes up residence in you. And everywhere you go, he's with you. Everywhere you go, he is with you. This is how, this is how Jesus, this is fantastic. This is how Jesus could say to these disciples in the next chapter, listen, I'm going away, but it's better for me to go away. It's better for you if I leave. They're thinking it's worse for them if he leaves. He's saying it's not worse. It's better. How can it be better than to have Jesus in front of you? It's better to have him in you. Because Jesus was only, he was only with them when he was present. When they left his presence, he wasn't with them. But this other helper, the Holy Spirit, is going to dwell in them. And wherever they go, he's with them. Wherever they go, he goes. There's never a time and never a place and never a circumstance and never an event where they go or where you go or where I go where the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit is not present because he dwells within us. It's better for Christ to die. It's better for Christ to be resurrected. It's better for Christ to ascend to the Father because the Holy Spirit is coming and he dwells within. The God of all gods within us. And it's no longer just selective involvement. It's permanent indwelling. It's no longer the Spirit of God empowering somebody for a specific task and then withdrawing. It's now a universal indwelling. Every believer, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within, and He's there for every single one. There's not a person who's a Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit. Don't let anybody tell you the lie that you can be a Christian and you need some other experience, some other time down the road to gain the Holy Spirit. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. The Holy Spirit indwells us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, listen to this. But Paul writes, but you are not controlled by your own sinful nature. You're controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And then he goes on to say, and remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not what? They don't belong to Christ at all. In other words, if you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you, you belong, or let me say this way, if you belong to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. If you do not have the Holy Spirit living in you, then you do not what? Belong to Christ. There is no way a person can be a Christian and not have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Don't let someone tell you otherwise. Because there's plenty of people who would love to. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 26, same thing is mentioned. And it's no longer just a selective involvement, but it's a universal indwelling. And it's no longer temporary. It's now permanent. The work of the Holy Spirit is permanent. A quick example, Judges 16, verse 20. This is the story of Samson. You know, Samson, Delilah, remember that one? This is the end of the story. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. This is Delilah. And he awoke from his sleep and he said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know what? That the Lord had left him. How did the Lord leave him? Because the Holy Spirit wasn't a permanent dwelling. He was a temporary dweller. He empowered for a season and he would withdraw. And you saw the result in Samson's life when the Spirit of the Lord withdrew. He no longer had the power that he had before. It's different than it is today. The Spirit of God dwells in you if you're a Christian. Permanently, never to leave. 
I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another helper. And he will be with you, Jesus said, forever. Forever. There's nothing you can do to lose the Spirit of God within you. There's never a time if you're a Christian that you'll have an experience like Samson where it could be said of you, the Lord left him or the Lord left her. It doesn't matter what you go through in this life. It doesn't matter how bad the circumstances of your life get. And you know there's a temptation in all of our lives when life begins to go sour and bad things begin to happen and we experience tragedy and we experience disappointment and we experience deep hurts that we were tempted to look up and say, God, where are you? Where have you gone? Right? It should be never a thing that comes out of the mouth or heart of a believer because you're indwelt by the Spirit of God who never leaves you. And will never forsake you. If you're in pain, if you're in hurt, if you're in disappointment, if you're in discouragement, it's not because God's left you. It's because God desires to do a work in your life as you navigate through it. He's your helper through it. He doesn't take you to those places and then withdraw and leave you there. He takes you that he might grab your hand and sometimes pick you up and carry you through it. So that on the other side you come out like gold refined through the fire. A fire that you would have never walked through on your own, willingly. It's part of the work of the Spirit. Our time is up. It was a beautiful, beautiful truth for these disciples. They didn't get it. But the light bulb would come on. It would come on later. It would come on at Pentecost because they're fearful, terrified, confused up to that point. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, terrified, fearful, confused people become certain, bold Witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that was promised to them is promised to you. It's promised to me. And he indwells you if you're a believer. But the Bible does tell us that his work can be resisted. That there are things you and I can do to resist the Holy Spirit. He's at work. He's our helper. And he's trying to help. Have you ever tried to help somebody and they resisted you? You ever tried that? Like... Dude, I'm trying to help you. Would you back down? It's hard to help somebody who resists your help. You and I can resist the work of the Holy Spirit. He's a helper. He's doing his work in our lives. But there are lots of things that we can do to resist that help and make it difficult. The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit can be quenched. The picture of a, of a fire that ice water can be thrown on. We can, we can do things in our life to quench the work of the Spirit. We can embrace sinful behaviors in our lifestyle. We can resist his conviction. We can refuse to spend time in the Word of God. We can, we can refuse to gather with God's people. We can refuse to walk in obedience to the Lord. We can, we can do a lot of things. We can embrace sinful habits and lifestyles. We can indulge in things that we know are evil and wrong. We can do all of those things. And they don't remove the Spirit of God, but they do inhibit His work. And perhaps you're sitting here, and as you look at your own life, and you think back over your spiritual journey, you look back, and you can look back over the last four or five years, maybe the last ten years, heck, maybe longer than that. You can say, you know, I don't see any visible evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, if that's you this morning, you might want to look in the mirror and ask the question, am I doing something to quench the work? Am I resisting the helper? Am I doing things that are inhibiting the work of God in my life? If you are, then this morning is the time to repent of those things, to name them before the Lord, to put a name on those things. God, here's what I'm doing in my life that I believe is quenching the work of your Spirit in my life. Holy Spirit, here's how I'm resisting you. And your work in my life. And today I repent of that. I pray for your forgiveness. And I pray that your work would abound in my life and be visible via the fruit 
of your spirit. Maybe that's the way you need to apply it this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning giving thanks to you for these beautiful words that you gave to your apostles before your leaving, before your departure. You wanted them to know they didn't have to be afraid because they weren't going to be left as orphans. You wanted them to know that they weren't going to be left on their own to try and figure out life in their own human wisdom, their own intellect. You wanted them to know that they didn't have to be afraid because they were not without protection. Because you were sending, sending another helper, Holy Spirit. And we're thankful for how we see that play out in the history of the church, for how you, the Holy Spirit has, that you've sent has done his work. We're thankful in our own lives for how we see his work evident in us. And Holy Spirit, we're grateful for your work in us. We're grateful for how you convict us and how you illuminate the word and how you grow us and sanctify us and how you keep us in Christ even in those moments when we try to run away. And we confess before you corporately and individually, Holy Spirit, that we, we understand that there are things in our lives that we do to quench your work, to resist your help. Specific sins, specific thought patterns, specific behaviors that we embrace before you this morning. We repent of those things. I pray in these moments you'd help us to see them and to name them before you and to turn from them. We want your work and your power to be evident in our lives. We want the fruit of your work, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, to be the hallmarks of our life so that when people interact with us, that's what they see and that's what they experience. We pray for your power to be at work in our church. We pray that you would empower our worship. We pray that you would empower our service. We pray that when the word of God is open in the context of this congregation, that your illuminating work is abundant. When this congregation takes the gospel to to the lost world, we pray that you would motivate us, engage us, and when we take the gospel, that you would make it explode into reality into the lives of those to whom we share it. That they'd be drawn to Christ. Only you can do this work in us. And we pray for it this morning in Christ's name. Amen.